So it was Veterans Day this week, and there were some other things that went on. Um, I noticed all my Marine Corps friends from, uh, from uh, uh, NASA were all giving me uh, the what for on the day before Veterans Day because it's the Marine Corps' birthday. The Marines are 245 years old. Now stop and think about that. The country is not 245 years old. So it turns out that um, three branches of our military existed before our country did the Navy, the Army, and the Marines. So uh, it seems a bit odd that three branches of our military are older than the country, but it absolutely is. That's cool. Let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, our God and Savior, we thank you for this day, Lord. Lord, we thank you that you are the Most High and the Almighty that you are sovereign over the whole universe. We thank you so much for the gifts that you leave us. We ask for your wisdom in our decisions. Give us discernment, Lord. Your truth is the truth that sets us free, and we need to know your truth. We look to your scriptures from the prophet Isaiah today. Set us free from the slavery of sin, free from misunderstanding, Free us from the bondage to false thinking and teaching, and free us from our own idols. Free us to believe your truth, to hold fast to your truth. Heavenly Father, it's difficult for us because of the trials in our lives. Lord, we know that you are working to make us into the image of your Son by doing this. Holy Spirit, enable us to trust in Jesus, who is the object of our saving faith and to believe the words here spoken of him under the inspiration of you, given, breathed out by God, and written down by your servant, the prophet Isaiah. Help us, Lord, to be both hearers and believers, to live out this truth, and not to believe untruth. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're still in Isaiah. Now, everybody here realizes that we're going to be in Isaiah until Easter, of 2022. I want you to stop and think about that. That's if we do one chapter a week, and we're not able, to, we're not doing that right now. Okay, so it's going to be after Easter of 2022 before we get all done here. And I'm thinking, what are we going to do after this one? You know, how do you top Isaiah? This is 760 years before Jesus comes, and Isaiah is predicting Jesus' coming. Actually, I have a plan. I've been thinking about this, and I'll hatch it on you guys. We'll, we'll, we'll see when we get there, all right? Okay, today we're finishing up Isaiah 7. Bill did the first half of Isaiah 7 last week, and this week we're going to do the last half of Isaiah 7, and we're going to do the first half of Isaiah 8. And hopefully the timing on this is going to work out that I'm actually setting it up so that Bill gets to do a really special message out of Isaiah just before we go into Advent. And, and uh, that's, that's intentional on my part, so you're getting a slightly smaller sermon today because of that, so it'll all line up. Okay, so let's start. Now, the opening of this first verse didn't have much of an explanation either by Isaiah or in my study notes. So I went and I did a little digging. 
So let's look at verses, uh, let's see, let me back up. So we're in Isaiah 7, right? And verses 18 and 19. Let's take a look at those, all right? So verses 18 and 19. In that day, the Lord will whistle for the fly that is at the end of the streams of Egypt and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. And they will all come settle in the steep ravines and the clefts of the rocks and all, on all the thorn bushes and on all the pastures. So when you first read that, you're going, okay, so God is calling this fly and this bee big deal, right? It actually is a huge deal. And let me explain. Okay. So, um, I dissected the statement a little more. And, and why is that? This, you know, what's the deal with Egypt and with Assyria? Well, of course, those are the two opponents. And what is it about these two insects, the fly from Egypt and the bee from Assyria? So, you know, the scientists. I immediately start digging up all these entomology texts. Entomology is the study of insects. Okay. So the flies in Egypt, it turns out, these are famous. There are 65 species of biting black flies in Egypt. All right? So now stop and think about this. These are animals that congregate around water sources and it's not just fresh water it's also salt water and in fact there are warnings from the state department of the united states about tourists deciding to go to the red sea where all these beachfront resorts are because of the black flies that are there the huge black fly problem that they have in this entire area so these are biting black flies that God is calling. This is like one of the most major curses. Okay, so the flies in Egypt, super, super famous. And a few of them live in a mixture of the two, fresh and, and salt water, brackish water. It's so bad there, I, I already told you about the, the State Department, but it, it's even worse. They are far more prevalent, more numerous, and have more painful bites than anything here in the United States. Do you remember the plagues that Moses brought down on the Egyptians? You remember the fourth plague? I've already given it away, okay? The fourth plague is for the plague of flies. These are the flies that God brings on the fourth plague. This is why when that plague happens, this is where, it's the very first one where Pharaoh cracks and he gives in to the, to the Israelites, and then he takes it back, okay? So, the whole episode is encompassed in Exodus 8, 20 through 32. You can go read that on your own, Exodus 8, 20 to 32. You'll note this is the first plague that causes Pharaoh to capitulate, to give in a little. And remember, there are no screens in the windows or doors of any of the buildings, not even for the pharaoh. I'm sure there were nets for sleeping under, okay? They would take probably linen or something, a very loosely woven linen, and drape it over the bed. So at least at night, you would be safe from these animals. Um, 
And um, there was another paper that got written here recently about um, they found a cave, and apparently people had been living in this cave 40,000 years ago. So this is like five times further back than Noah, all right? And people, even though very Stone Age people were living at that time, they figured out that bed, by, bed bugs and ants are a huge problem for people when they're sleeping. And so they would put their bedding down, which would be grass, and what these people figured out was that if they took the ashes from their fire, cold ashes, and spread them out thinly on the ground around their bedding, that the bugs wouldn't cross that. And the reason is the lye and the ash is a desiccant, and it sucks all the water out of the bugs and it kills them. And so that's why they would do this, and they actually found this in these old camps from 40,000 years ago that the natives were doing this at that time. People figured this stuff out. So it, it would take care of all the scorpions, spiders, and some of the, even some of the larger pests. Okay, let's go back and look at Exodus 8, and I'm gonna read Exodus 8, 20 to 22. Then the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out to the water and say to him, thus says the Lord, tell, let my people go that they may serve me. Or else, if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people and into your houses. And the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies and also the ground on which they stand. But on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. So God sets it up so that the flies only attack the Egyptians, not the Israelites. And so Pharaoh cracks on this one. I had always wondered why the arrival of the flies was the first plague which causes Pharaoh to begin to capitulate, and now it makes sense to me, right? Biting black flies. All right. So then we're left with the other one, the bee from Assyria. So it turns out that they did not have a way to differentiate between bees and yellow jackets and wasps and hornets. And there's a certain very large variety, very large variety of yellow jacket that grows in, a, in Syria. And it's, again, pretty famous. And this is the bee from Syria that God is calling that will rest in all the places where all the people would go to hide. And again, very painful stings from these animals. So you can imagine what it meant when Isaiah says, in that day the Lord will call for the fly that is at the end of the streams of Egypt and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. And then these pests come and cover the landscape so that there is no escape. That's a pretty incredibly terrible thing. This curse that God is calling down. It's surprising to me that 
I mean, this is, this is a pretty big deal right here. It would be a big deal to me. I think it would be a big deal to most of you too. And there isn't much made of that in, in any of the footnotes that I found. Okay, let's keep going. Verse 20. In that day, the Lord will shave with the razor that is hired beyond the river with the king of Assyria, the head and the hair of the feet, and it will sweep away the beard also. A razor hired from beyond the river. So I took this to mean the Tigris and Euphrates River. So it's talking about Babylon, I think, because Damascus, which is where the, the center of Assyria is, really doesn't have much of a river. But, but beyond the river, that's, that's a pretty big deal. And being well-groomed and having your hair well-kept is a really big deal for the Israelites. And you, you kind of get that already just looking at, at Jews today because they follow many of the same customs that were established at this time. And so if you shave off all the hair on their heads, that's a disgrace. And I can imagine that if you were a prisoner being captured by the Babylonians or the Assyrians, when they would shave you, I'm sure it wasn't a pleasant thing that, you know, cutting you up probably is no big deal to them. And so when it says being shaved by the razor hired from beyond the river, that I think is a pretty painful thing. Again, this is a pretty painful thing that God is doing, a pretty strong curse. Verse 21 and 22, it shifts just a little bit. And it's trying to, Isaiah is trying to emphasize how poor people are at this time. Verses 21 and 22. In that day, a man will keep alive a young cow and two sheep. Because of the abundance of milk that they give, he will eat curds. For everyone who is left in the land will eat curds and honey. Previously, we mentioned that eating curds and drinking milk was for poor people. Only the poorest of the people would be forced to drink milk and eat curds. But now everyone is being forced to do this because they are so destitute. Because the people who live in Israel and Judea are the poorest of the poor. Stop and think about the way we view people that live in sub-Saharan Africa, okay? Niger, Nigeria, Liberia, those places that the poor people in those places are truly, truly destitute by any comparison that, to anything that we have in the United States. We, we need to imagine people who have nothing, a dirt floor mud house on the edge of the desert. When I was a, a very young man, I was maybe six or seven years old, we went and visited the Navajo Reservation in Arizona. And we went to visit this family, and 
this lady that was the head of the family, she was the, the, patri the, the matriarch. Her name was Lucy Lewis. You can go Google her. She's pretty famous. She was, in the 1890s, there were four young girls who decided to resurrect the art of making Indian pottery. When the missionaries came in the early 1800s, they were banned from being able to do this. And so these young girls went to their grandparents who, when the pots were being made, were young children. And they remembered how to do it. And they taught these four girls how to do this. One of those four girls was Lucy Lewis. And she's from the Akama tribe. She was living on the Navajo reservation. We went to her house, and it was a, a hogan about, and a hogan is a mud, a mud hut, and it's about the diameter of this, the end of this, this key right here. And she and two of her daughters were living there, and the two daughters had kids, and the kids were about my age, actually. And... Um, this is in the middle of nowhere on the Navajo Reservation, and it's just a dirt hut. And um, my mom and my dad had gone, they were m members of the Natural History Museum down here in LA. We were living in Redondo Beach. And Lucy Lewis had come out for a showing, an art showing of her pottery. And that was where my parents met her. And so when we meet again on the Navajo Reservation, she brings us in and she's actually baking, she runs out and she starts baking bread for my parents and I. And, and it's uh, Navajo flatbread. It, it was really an amazing thing. I, I remember this like it happened yesterday. Um, the two daughters also made pottery, um, Emma Lewis and Dolores Lewis. Emma Lewis and Dolores Lewis just retired from making pottery. And um, I think they're in their 80s now. Uh, but so this, these generations are sort of passing away. But this is, I was, remember commenting about the, the, the dirt floor in the hut as we drove away afterwards. And my parents were trying to explain to me about how poor these people were in comparison to what I normally thought was poor. And, and it was really very, very startling to me. That's what I imagine here that Isaiah is talking about. These people are so poor that they have to drink milk and eat curds and honey. Let's go back, verse 23. In that day, every place where there used to be a thousand vines worth a thousand shekels of silver will become briars and thorns. With bow and arrows, a man will come there, for all the land will be briars and thorns. And as for all the hills that used to be hoed with the hoe, you will not come there for fear of briars and thorns. But they will become a place where cattle are let loose and where sheep tread. This land used to be incredibly fertile and rich and productive. 
And now Israel and Judea are stripped bare. There's just nothing left. And all that is left are just briars and thorns. Now keep in mind, this is the message that Isaiah is bringing to King Ahaz. And King Ahaz is looking out at all this, this farmland with all these vineyards and growing all this food. And I'm, I imagine him just laughing at Isaiah over all of this. Because Isaiah says all of this is going to pass away when the Assyrians come. The passage ends here, by the way. And if you imagine to look at this, there's just nothing left. And hunting nomads roam the hills, scrounging for an animal to kill and eat with bows and arrows. Even the finest vineyards are nothing but a field, a field of weeds and goats and cattle grazing and pooping on the landscape. Right? And this ends the message to King Ahaz. Now here we move on to chapter 8. And it just struck me right here, we have this neat break, right? And you go from one section to another. Now I want you to imagine how Isaiah was all written out on these scrolls. They did not have any upper and lower case. By the way, you, do you know where upper and lower case comes from? I didn't realize this. That case is something that actually, Gutenberg, he's making the first Bible, printing press, right? This is why you can have a Bible in your lap right now. Well, not those of you with technology. I'm talking about, you know, a Bible. Okay. <laughs> but it turns out that movable type, they're actually grabbing the letters and putting them into the press so that they can actually press the ink on it and press out these pages. Okay. There's a lower case and there's an uppercase with all the capital letters, literally. And the lowercase is the one that is predominantly used, and that's why it's the lowercase, so it's closer to the printing press where you're actually using them. This is where the word case comes from, and it's a leftover now. Because we also have the, the idea of capital letters. So what do we call the lowercase letters? Lowercase, uppercase but we also call those capital letters. It turns out that there are Latin words for this, and there's a major skule, which is the uppercase, and here comes the other word. The lowercase are called minuscule, and that's why we have the word minuscule that exists in the English language, and it's, it's an old Latin term. We have all these neat punctuation. And we, by the way, we know exactly what Isaiah said. It turns out that the Dead Sea Scrolls, there are multiple copies of the prophet Isaiah. And Isaiah fit on three scrolls. There's actually a, a picture of, of the scrolls, Dead Sea Scrolls, laid out on the ground. And it takes three scrolls to do the entire book of Isaiah. And I imagine Jesus sitting there in the synagogue on the first Sunday where he, first Saturday actually, where he's 
the priest hands him the scroll, and Jesus rolls the scroll open to that one verse that he reads, right? And of course, he's Jesus. He can have that scroll open to wherever he wants, and he gets that one verse that he wants, and it's not like any sort of an accident. It's exactly the way it was supposed to be. And I know what I'd be doing. It's like, I know it's here somewhere. You guys would be sitting there for 20 minutes while trying to find it. Okay. Let's go. Chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. The coming Assyrian invasion. And Isaiah gets told to do something different. Chapter 8, verse 1 and 2. Then the Lord said to me, Take a large tablet and write on it in common characters belonging to Meir Shalal Hazbaz. And I will get reliable witnesses, Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jeberechiah, to attest for me. Now, write in common characters, okay? When it says write in common characters, I immediately think graffiti on a wall. That's what God is telling him to do on this large tablet. He's telling him to make a sign that says this. Okay. And the thing that he's supposed to write on there are the names Mer Shalal and Hazbaz. And by the way, they have the same meaning. All right? And the phrase is repeated. And the phrase means quick to the plunder or quick to the spoils. Run to the spoils. That's what this actually means. And this is actually the name that Isaiah gives to his child. And by the way, this is the second longest name in the entire Bible. There's one that's just slightly longer, if you can imagine that. Now, the other part of it here is this message is part of the message to King Ahaz, the disreputable king. Remember, he's the one, one of the screw-ups in the Bible, the bad example, okay? And we also have, well, let me, let me back up. King Ahaz, 2 Kings 11.2, 2 Kings 11.2. Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. And he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God, as his father David had done. Okay disreputable king, right there, boom, 2 Kings 11.2. Okay, the priest Uriah that gets mentioned right here, and it says, I will get reliable witnesses, Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jeberechiah, to attest for me. Well, Uriah the priest, here's what it says in 2 Kings 16.10 and 11. 2 Kings 16.10 and 11. When King Ahaz went to Damascus to meet Tilgath Pisler, king of Assyria, he saw that altar that was at Damascus. So this is not, not an altar to the, our Lord, 
God. And King Ahaz sent to Uriah the priest a model of the altar and its pattern, exact in all its detail. And Uriah the priest built the altar in accordance with all that King Ahaz had sent from Damascus. So Uriah the priest made it before King Ahaz arrived from Damascus. This is what 2 Kings 16, 10 and 11 say. So Uriah the priest makes an altar to Baal because Ahaz told him, go do this thing. Now, there's speculation that the Zechariah that it's talking about here is a false prophet. But the Zechariah, who is the son of Jeberechiah, or Berechiah, is the Zechariah who wrote the book of the Old Testament that we have, who is not a disreputable prophet. So there's some sort of a contrast that's being trying to be brought out here, and the meaning is unclear. It's unclear to me, and all the commentators that I read about this, it's very clear to me that they don't know what they're talking about either. So I don't know what's going on because to me, two out of the three characters here are disreputable based on what I can find. And yet the third one person is actually quite reliable as a witness. And I'm not sure if Isaiah is trying to make a joke of the other two or how this is going. I don't understand it. And I'm just telling you guys, I don't understand this right here. So when we all read this, I, I can't reliably say what it's really trying to tell us. Okay. So now we get to verses 3 and 4. And I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. So this is Isaiah's wife. We don't know her name, but we do know that she also had the gift of prophecy. Okay? And I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. Then the Lord said to me, Call his name Mahershalal Hazbaz, for before the boy knows how to cry, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. So Isaiah continues, Isaiah and his wife have a child, and they name the child Mahershalal Hazbaz, and before he will be able to say, to say, Daddy or Mommy, okay, before he is able to say, Daddy or Mommy, the nation of Israel, the ten tribes of Samaria, will be carried away by Assyria to vanish forever. That's a pretty stern curse. Right there. Let's continue on, verses 5 through 7. And the Lord spoke to me again, because this people has refused the waters of Shaloah that flow gently and rejoice over Rezin, the son of Remalia, therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria in all his glory, and will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks. 
Now, the waters of Shiloh is an expression for the people of is an expression of the people's disdain for a gift from God. God gives them something, and they are not very respectful of the gift that God gives them. Second Chronicles 32.30. Second Chronicles 32.30. This same Hezekiah closed the upper outlet of the waters of Gihon and directed them down to the west side of the city of David. And Hezekiah prospered in all his works. So they're taking this spring that God gives them just on the edge of Jerusalem and they're simply dumping the water out outside the gates of the city. Jeremiah 2.13, Jeremiah 2.13. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So they literally carved out caverns in solid rock and stored water there, which, by the way, grows algae, and this is the water that they're drinking. And they have this spring of fresh water that they're dumping down the side of the mountain where Jerusalem is. It makes no sense to me, okay? I, I don't understand, but this is what they're doing. Regarding the prophecy against Rezin and the son of Remaliah, it appears that the people have rejoiced over the prophecy against the king of Assyria but they did not realize that their own doom is buried in here also, that all these other things will happen before Assyria falls. Judea did not go before God to repent, and by failing to do so, they have sealed their own fate. And they have tried God's patience too far in what they have done. We continue on to verse 8. And it will sweep into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck. And its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. And here is the prophecy repeated again, that the Assyrian army will sweep through Judah and will overrun all of the land. The reference to up to the neck implies that Assyria will not completely destroy all of Judea. A remnant shall remain, and Isaiah bestows on Judah the name of her savior, Emmanuel. The name Emmanuel means God with us. Verse 9, and I'm not sure if this is a song or if this is a poem but it's broken out. And if you look at it in, in your, your Bible or probably even online, it shows up as stanzas, right? Verse 9. Be broken, you peoples, and be shattered. Give ear, all you far countries. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Be broken is calling on all of us to repent before God. 
Be Shattered is calling on us to ask for forgiveness. And twice in the song or poem, it says, strap on your armor and be shattered. Verse 10. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand. For God is with us. I think what it says here, no matter what the people do amongst themselves, it will come to naught. The people's collective counsel cannot stand before God, and it will come to nothing. The people can speak words, but it will not matter before God. And ultimately, the Assyrians cannot stand, because God is with us. And verse 10 closes here. And so this, you have this little tiny glimmer of hope at the very end. Every time I, you notice this, Isaiah does this over and over again, and there's this little tiny glimmer of hope at the very end every single time. So, we have this lost battle with the Assyrians. Israel is carried off. It's a very dark and foreboding picture. And then Isaiah gets an image of God's glory. And Isaiah gives his message to King Ahaz. And God gives Isaiah the message to go back and tell the people that it will be tough and your lives will be difficult. But there is eternity with God in the end. And it is the remnant that will be with Emmanuel. You can see here, God promises again over and over to save his people. And redemption is bought and paid for those who grow under Emmanuel. And you can see how that lesson is speaking to us, even today. That we are the ones who are unworthy of God. We know we are unworthy. It's an image of us. And every time it says Emmanuel, you can think Jesus, okay? This is Jesus that is calling us back. And we know now from where we're standing that Jesus had to pay for our rebellion against God and our sin and our unfaithfulness. And he is the one that takes our guilt away. And he is the one that atones for our sin. And we are unworthy of any kindness from God, but God, faithful and true, sends Jesus to pay for our sins, to make us white as snow. It is God who saves us. It is Jesus who is our Redeemer. Jesus pays the penalty, which belongs solely to all of us. And Jesus takes it upon himself in himself alone. And we get to spend eternity with God the Father and with Jesus and with the Holy Spirit, singing praise and honor and glory before them in the shining city. Isaiah is pointing us back towards God. Isaiah is telling us this message of hope, 
a message from God. Isaiah is telling us to change the way we live in the world. Isaiah wants us to be more Christ-like, to become more Christ-like by looking to God. And the more we look towards Jesus, the more we become like him. One of the other things that Isaiah has in here is we need to appreciate the gifts that God gives us. And if you stop and think about the way we've treated the planet, which is one of the biggest gifts God gives to us, we haven't done a very good job of taking care of it. God loves all of us. I fail daily in who I should be as a Christian. The good Lord knows I am not there yet. Again and again, I need to be on my knees before God, relying on God, looking to God for his mercy and his love. I need that love that is beyond all comprehension or understanding. And still God chooses us. God, our Abba Father, Jesus has purchased our redemption. It's a free gift. If you haven't met yet, ask for that free gift. Do not wait. Pray to Jesus and ask for him to come into your heart. God's greatness will be there for all to see on the day of the Lord, and we will all witness his greatness and his splendor. I look forward to that day, the shining city on the hill, the mountain of the Lord the new Jerusalem, with no need of a temple because God dwells there. And indeed, we wait for Jesus to come. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, you are amazing and beyond beautiful. You have kept your words from Isaiah and sheltered them and brought them all the way down to lay before us today down through these ages, and you did this just to give us this. And we have been unfaithful, and yet you continue to protect us in the palm of your hand. Heavenly Father, we ask to hide your words in our hearts. Carve the words of your prophet Isaiah deep inside of us. Give us the lessons we must learn from you, only from you, and guide us in the ways of your will. Lord, we are so lost, and you are so true. Your plan of redemption is so perfect and so incredible. Jesus, you died in our place to redeem us, to save even us. Lord, you are so amazing, and we love you. We bless and honor you, Lord. Amen.